0: All right, so just a quick introduction again. So for the past few, two two years, almost every Sabbath, these are some of the people from Alaska that have been watching us and keeping track. And I know that for a lot of us up until this time, these are just ideas, just concepts that people kind of do. But here's some of the faces that have been joining us. Um, again, if you are watching from Alaska, Arizona, wherever else, we're glad you could join us for church this week. We're honored to have you as a part of our extended church family. If you've been joining us for the past few weeks, today we're currently in part three of a series called The Worst, sermon ever if you're joining us it's been a study through the book of ecclesiastes and again this is kind of a unique different take on a sermon series for rock fellowship for the most part we generally do our series through a topic we pick one concept whether it's doubt or family or stuff like that and we'll go through it we'll unpack that topic and gleaning from passages throughout scripture but for this series and again it's a little bit tbd on how long this series will be we're just going straight through the book of ecclesiastes and if you were there in person to listen to the book of Ecclesiastes and the teacher himself, you might conclude that this is one of the worst sermons ever. And this week, you will see why uh, we chose this as our sermon title and why one may think that about the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, part one, to give a quick recap, again, we're just building on the first two weeks. Part one, we talked about a key phrase. Pastor Chris talked about a phrase called, under the sun. And basically, how the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher starts by saying, everything under the sun is meaningless in most translations, or vanity. We'll get back to more of that means in a little bit. He talks about basically, under the sun refers to life apart from God, ungodly life, life apart from our Heavenly Father has no true meaning. And we'll get into that a little bit. So that was part one. We talked about the concept of being under the sun. We talked about how it can seem like a paradox, but you and I could potentially be having a relationship with God under the sun, a relationship with God that lacks respect or, awe of who God is, and God is just merely a genie that responds to our wishes, someone that cleans up after our messes, or someone that makes us feel better when we're feeling down. And last week, last week was one of the most, the, the, probably the heaviest hitting message we'll have in this series. And it talked about the areas in life that we look for meaning in that the teacher had already looked for and concluded that you cannot find meaning in it. And the three areas we talked about was pleasure. But we expanded that pleasure wasn't just about feeling good. It also included doing things that are inherently good in and of themselves. And the teacher said you can't truly find meaning in life just by doing good things. He also talked about work or production, that your meaning and value in life cannot be placed in the work that you do or the production that you produce or the things that you have because that is meaningless and it leads to a dead end. And we finished by talking about how we also could not find meaning in wisdom, despite the fact that if this was a multiple choice question, it would seem like wisdom is the right answer. How can you not find wisdom, find meaning in life in wisdom? And we extrapolate that a little bit about how you can't simply find meaning in life by bettering yourself or people in your life and use that as a means to find meaning and fulfillment in your life. Because that too is hevel. Before we go any further, that phrase hevel is going to come back to us a few more times in today's message. And if you weren't here for part one or part two, it's important that you kind of have a bit of an understanding of what that word is. When people talk about the book of Ecclesiastes, for the most part, the phrase or word that comes to mind is meaningless. Oh, that's the book that makes you depressed because it says that life has no meaning. And that's only partly true. The actual Hebrew word that people are referring to that most English translations translate to meaningless or vanity is the word hevel. And the word hevel literally translates to smoke or vapor. So when the teacher in Ecclesiastes is talking about hevel and how life is hevel, he's referring to two aspects of hevel. A, how just like smoke, life is fleeting or temporary. It doesn't last forever. And two, similar to vapor. If you've ever seen like dry ice vapor, it's so thick it almost looks solid and it has a shape. But it's very confusing. It's enigmatic. It's a bit paradoxical. Life doesn't completely make sense 100% of the time, but we'll get a little bit more into that as we go in. This week, we're in part three, and we didn't mean for it to work out this way, but part three of our series, we'll go through the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, and in my opinion, this is like the stereotypical chapter in Ecclesiastes. When people talk about why they don't like Ecclesiastes and how it's a downer and how it's like, oh, like I read it and I don't want to get up anymore. This is kind of the chapter. In my opinion, this, is, this chapter encapsulates a lot of what that is about. And this chapter really encapsulates what the teacher means when he says that life is hevel, the life is meaningless, the life is like smoke. It's temporary and it's confusing. We're gonna start with a word of prayer before we go into our message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this time where we can come together, Lord. It's often that we can take these things for granted. just coming together in a church community, worshiping, fellowshipping, and spending time learning about you, Father. Lord, I ask that um, in all these things and everything that I say today, Lord, as we, sp- as we sang just earlier, that we praise you and that you are glorified in all these things, Lord. Let me not get in the way of your truth and your word. Father, at this time, if there are any hearts that are hardened, minds that are closed off, Father, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit here today, Lord move in hearts, change our hearts, speak through me in only ways that you can, Father. Praising praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we go into this third chapter of Ecclesiastes, I want to start by showing the first verse. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, which is the first kind of introduction to this passage. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 reads that there is a time for everything, If you get on the screen, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. This is the first thing the teacher says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. If you notice, it's very important to note that he didn't say under the sun. He says every activity under the heavens. And I'm looking through, this phrase is actually not repeated very often. Um, throughout the book. The phrase under the sun is repeated several dozens of times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, but I think the teacher is trying to make a distinction. Listen, I'm not talking about life apart from God anymore. I'm just talking about in the natural world, in your life, there's a time and a season for every activity under the sun. And then he goes uh, on, but going, before we go any further, I want to talk about this idea of like this season of life. I don't know if you've ever heard that said before, but it's kind of in today's church and modern Christianity, it's become kind of a thing that we say. Right, You've probably heard it when people describe like the thing in life that they're going through. If someone is struggling, they say, I'm in a season of life where I'm I'm searching right now. If someone has questions of doubt, I'm in a season of doubt. Or if someone has recently you know, went through a bad breakup or something bad happened, I'm in a season of sadness right now. Or my least favorite is um, when someone is dating someone and they want to break up with them, they go, I prayed and God has called me to a season of singleness right now. So I feel like this is, I, I asked God and I prayed about it, but I really feel like he's calling me to, you know, just, Be myself and be by myself by now, which is by far my least favorite breakup line. But again, that that concept of seasons is not something that's very um, unique to us. You've probably heard it, whether in secular world or in Christianity, that there are certain seasons of life. There's a time in your life, you can describe it as as a phase or something you're going through, where there's a predominant thing that's going on in your life, whether it's sadness, whether it's searching, whether it's doubt, especially when it relates to your relationship with God. And if you've ever played Pokemon before, and this is, I tried this reference on the youth, and like, it didn't really hit, so I don't know if it'll hit for everybody else. If you've ever played Pokemon before, this is, um, and you're inside a building, and you try to use your bike. Does anyone know what dialogue comes up? If you're playing Pokemon, and you try to use your bike indoors, it won't let you, and a phrase will come up. And the phrase will be, in the words of Professor Oak, there's a time and place for everything, but not now. And again, this this concept of a season is not something that's strictly um, tied to Christianity, but it's really at life of large. So, and if you continue on, after he sets the stage, right, there's a time and a season for everything, the teacher then goes into a very, very long list, potentially a fairly comprehensive list of all the different seasons of life that you can go through. And we'll go through them real quick just so we can get um, uh, an idea of what he's talking about. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the next chapter, um, the next verse, a time to be born a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Next slide. A time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, time to embrace, time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. I believe there's one more slide. A time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. It's a fairly long list. And it's, again, it's, it's almost comprehensive. Like, he's covered most of the things that you could probably go through in life. And if you notice, very quickly, the first thing that jumps out to you is that he's kind of placed him in this... One good facet of life followed by one bad facet of life, right? Time to mend, tear down, time to be born, a time to die, a time to embrace or hug, and a time to refrain from embracing. And you, you notice that the teacher intentionally creates these two sides. And really, the focal point of this message here today is that in a lot of ways, this list of the seasons of life is his way of telling us this list, this list is the reason why life is heavy. This list is the reason, the fact that there are all these seasons of life that you go through, whether it's to mend or to build up, whether it's to uproot or whether it's to plant. This is why my argument is that life is A, short and fleeting, and B, it doesn't really make sense. It's confusing. It's heavily. Again, this word, Hevel, smoke, occurs 38 times in the book. When you read the actual list, it's important to note that the first thing he says is life There's a season to be born and a season to die. That's the first thing he mentions. He starts off by saying, everyone here was born at some point, and I guess that was your season of birth, and at some point, inevitably, everyone will die. So he bookmarks, he bookends this this list. I'm going to start off by saying, you're all born. If you're reading this, if you're hearing this, at some point, you were born. And at some point, again, there's a very strong hook that he starts with, you will die. And then he goes off into this list. And all of these different things that happen in your life are going to be bookended by life, by your birth, and by your death. So, at the very least, the first thing he wants you to know is that life eventually has an end. Which is very, again, this is, this is for me, this is like the stereotypical, ah, now we're in Ecclesiastes. This is like, this is what I'm talking, this is why people are sad. So you're born and eventually at some point, you all will die. And then after establishing this fact, he goes into these very specific seasons. Right? And At some point before you die, you will experience a time when you have to be silent, when you have to be loud, when you hug, when you don't hug, when you plant, when you uproot. It's interesting that as he goes through all of this, he's saying that in life there are times we're called to plant, called to uproot. And again, the list takes one good facet of life and balances out with one quote-unquote bad facet of life. And some of them are, are harsher contradictions than others, you could argue, being silent and being loud. Not necessarily one is better than the worst. But for the most part, this list kind of balances the good and bad aspects of living life. And when you read this list, as I did, as I was studying this passage, and the was like, all right, you're doing chapter three, I finished chapter two, and I was studying this list to prepare for this message today. You read it, and I don't know about you, but my conclusion was, yes, I mean, I guess, like, that's true, right? Yeah, I suppose that in life there are times to uproot and times to plan. I suppose in life it's better to be quiet than to say something. I suppose in life, yeah, I guess eventually we'll all die. My question was, what is the point of this? At this point in the chapter, it seems more that this is appropriate for the book of Proverbs than it is for Ecclesiastes. Like all, These are all just true things. And it's hard to see, like, what is the point? What is the author really trying to say? And I was looking through... And I guess, in general, I was a little sad. I was really, ah, oh, man, that's true. Life can't always be up and to the right. Sometimes in life, you do have to tear stuff down. Sometimes, this is one of the saddest ones, sometimes he says there's a time to search and a time to give up searching. And I was like, ah, oh, you read that? And I, as I was trying to, you know, break down what is he really trying to say, the initial reaction was, okay, it's true that in life, It can't always be sunshine and rainbows and butterflies. You can't always find what you want. You can't always laugh. You can't always dance. You can't always be happy. Sure, in life, there's good, there's bad. That's balance. And, you know, anyone that's lived more than, like, 15 seconds knows this to be the case. But going deeper, what is he really trying to say? What is the point of this list of describing these potential different seasons in life? And then I looked a little closer, and I noticed that, what he wasn't actually saying. So as I was reading this list, it sounded like he's listing all these scenarios, right? These are the different scenarios that you go through in life that'll cause these different outcomes. But when you read closer, he, ha- he doesn't actually mention anything about things that will happen to you. These are all responses. These are all actions and decisions that you will make at some point in your life because of things that will happen to you. So in other words, he doesn't say that there will be times of hurricanes and rainbows. There will be times of being fired and getting a raise. He didn't say there are times of birthday parties and memorial services. He says, if anything, if you read a little bit kind of in between the lines, the implied message is that because there will be times of financial hardships, you will mourn. Because there will be times of birthday parties, you will laugh and dance. And the list itself doesn't describe an actual that is going to happen to you the list itself is describing how you will respond to the inevitable ups and downs of life because bad things happen you will mourn because of the scenario or the situation that you're in it'll dictate the response and the action that you will take you will be in a situation you'll read the room you'll read what's going on in your life and you will come to the conclusion this is a time to be quiet or you will read the room you will read the situation and you'll say this is the time to say something. I've got to act or speak out. But the list itself doesn't actually mention an event or something that, aside from the fact that you will be born and die. Everything else in between is an option or a decision that you will get to make sometime down the road. And as I read this, the subtle truth, I feel like that the author of Ecclesiastes was getting at, and again, this is when I was like, it began to sink into me about what he was really trying to say and why life was so heavy. He's saying essentially that the actions you take in life, whether you weep or mourn, dance or laugh, are all essentially dictated by external factors. The decisions you make in life, the actions you take, the reactions you have to the situations in life are all dictated by things that happen to you. And because of the things that will happen to you, or the randomness of life that will happen to you, it will dictate whether or not you're in a season of weeping. Whether or not you're in a season of joy, whether or not you're in a season of laughing, or whether or not you're in a season of searching. And in a sense, and I don't think it's too big of a stretch to say this, what this author is trying to get at is that your life, in a lot of ways, is determined. The way you live your life, the actions you take, the decisions you make, the words you say or don't say, is determined By the randomness of life around you the situations that life throws at you determines how you will live and what you will do and to a certain extent maybe the first initial reaction you have is like that's not true i can choose to laugh when i'm supposed to cry i can choose to continue searching even though i'm supposed to not to but again this is coming from solomon arguably a potentially solomon one of the wisest people to live and sure you can take the stance of you know what no i'm gonna live my life the way i want to i'm gonna you know go against the grain live by my own rules And you know what? When I'm supposed to cry, I'm not going to cry. I'm just going to dance. When I'm supposed to give up searching, I'm just going to keep on searching until I find it because I will take control of my own life. And again, it's kind of a romantic notion to think that way. But if we're being honest, that's not a very sustainable way to live life. And again, this, this is the book of Ecclesiastes. This is not a book about sunshine and rainbows. The reality, the observation that this teacher is making is, look, I live my life, and these seasons of life come and go whether you like it or not. Whether you plan it or not, you're going to have a time, a situation, a financial hardship or a family struggle that'll hit you, and it'll bring you to your knees, and you're going to mourn. And whether you like it or not, something good will happen to you. Whether you plan for it or not, you'll get a raise or something amazing will happen to you in your life. And you'll laugh and you'll dance because the situation calls for it. And at some time, you'll be looking for something, and you'll quickly realize it's not worth looking for anymore, and I'm going to have to stop searching. You're going to read the room, and sometimes you're going to get the urge to speak out, but really... What you do is dictated, these seasons of life, how you choose to live is dictated by the randomness of life. And on top of that, all of this, all of this, this life that you live, all these seasons are ended by when you inevitably die. Therefore, life is heavy A, at the very least, you will die at some point and you don't know when that will happen. And B, life is complicated. It's unclear. It's uncertain. It's paradoxical. A lot of the stuff, a lot of the reasons you are the way you are, a lot of the times the way you act, the way you act, is simply because the scenarios that life throws at you. Life throws a bad situation at you, you mourn. Life throws a good situation, and you're good. That like smoke, it seems that it's life seems like something we can hold on to and grasp. And if you've ever seen, again, you've ever seen like dry ice vapor, you can't help but kind of reach out and try to grasp it. But what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is arguing. I think it's from his observations of life that that's part of the reasons why life is heavy. that it's really ultimately that your life, the way you live your life, what happens tomorrow, the future of your life, your plans, are ultimately outside of your control. Like smoke, you can try to grab it. Most of us do, but the minute you try to grab it, you realize that it simply slips through your fingers and that like smoke and like vapor, life is heavy. A it's temporary, it's fleeting, it eventually has an end. And B, can you really explain the randomness of life? Can you really choose when to do all these things? No, life throws those situations at you and you simply respond to the situation that arises. You are not in control of your own life. As much as you would like to think, your life is largely dictated by the things around you, by the ups and downs and the sides to sides that life throws in your face. And when I realized this, As I was reading this, and that's kind of the conclusion I came through from this, this list and this idea, I felt very, very, very small and kind of powerless. And for me, I felt that this was largely true. I can't really explain where I am in life. A lot of the reasons I'm here where I am and who I am is because of eternal factors. I call it luck, call it someone coming through for me. But I ended up here... Where I am, I am who I am largely in part because of outside influences, the people that were around me who I didn't choose, the opportunities and doors that opened up. When I was sad, it wasn't because I I woke up one day and I wanted to be sad, it's because something sad happened to me. And when I went out searching and, and, and seeking, it wasn't because I decided to do it, it's because the opportunities around me asked me to do that. And the older I get, I realize that more and more of my life, more of my life is outside of my control and I thought, whether it's by luck or circumstance, I didn't get here because I planned to be here 24 years ago when I was a baby. And I didn't plan, and even if I did, a lot of the plans that I made didn't necessarily go the way that I wanted to. And in a sense, I could kind of get what the teacher was getting at. A lot of my life, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I didn't control 99.9% of my life. It was the situations around me, and I just responded to the world around me. And the teacher goes on to say this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. So after he says this, after he concludes this list, this is what he then says. What do workers gain from the toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So he concludes this this list of seasons by saying, look, what do you really gain from your toil? I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. We all work and we're all subject to the toil of life. And then he switches his tone a little bit. then he starts to talk about God. He shifts from the things that we go through, and he says, this is who God is. God, he has made everything beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He concludes this passage by talking about, again, he like hammers down the hopelessness, right? We're all subject to toil. What do we really gain? And then he shifts his focus, and he says, God has made everything beautiful in his time. And the other thing that he's done, inside every single one of you, he's placed eternity. Some other versions say he has placed an awareness, an acknowledgement, or an inkling of what eternity is in every single one of our hearts. Yet no one can really fathom what God has done for beginning to end. In other words, in other commentaries, I think that that phrase, that he has set eternity in the human heart, just simply refers to the fact that we as human beings have, there's a part of us that knows a little bit about Infinity. We know that there's something bigger than ourselves as a human. And for me, I think the best place to really get that feeling that you are small and that there's something bigger than you is nature. And I'm gonna start by by disclaimer. I'm not the biggest nature guy. I'm not first, I'm not the first person to suggest hiking or going on a camp. But there are two moments in my life where I was out in nature and I truly felt like what this verse means, that there, is, there was a small, when I was in these moments and in these scenarios and I saw what I saw, something inside of me stirred and said, you are very, very small and there's something much, much bigger than you. The first time was I went on a hike um, called Angels Landing with a group of my friends, actually just before I started here at Rock. And I've asked around and people have told me that yeah, that's not a very easy hike. So what I'm gonna say makes me feel a lot better. But two, one time on that, two times on that hike, I was going with my friends, I said not to be funny and not to like, you know, just for the sake of saying something. I sent from the bottom of my heart, I asked my friends, leave me. I'm going to stay right here. Let me hold on to your bags. I can't go anymore. This is like the hardest hike I've ever done in my life. Again, this is like just a few years ago. And I, did, I said this not to be funny and not to like, oh, try to raise morale. I said it because that was in my heart of hearts, my desire. I asked them, please, just leave me on the side. I'll sit on this rock. I have my phone. You go and come back. Again, this is one of the hardest hikes. I haven't done very many hikes, but this is the hardest hike that I've ever done. And, you know, I was with my friends, and some of them were, like, in very good shape. They hiked all, like, very often. And those guys generally give, like, the worst advice and the worst encouragement. I was hiking, and he said, dude, the secret is to breathe through your nose, and I was like, you don't think I've tried that already? So I've been doing this the whole time. So if you just breathe through your nose, it's so much easier. And through, so, like, listening to about an hour of that, we got to the top of this hike. And if you've been on this hike before, there's a few moments where, like, you're, like, kind of shuffling along the side of a cliff, holding onto, like, a steel cable. So many times in my mind, I was like, why did I do this? Why am I friends with these people? Why did I agree to this trip? I could have been home. But you get to the top. And to describe kind of the picture that you see, it's the top of Angel's Landing is in, like, this huge canyon. And you're standing on like a slim rock in the middle of this canyon. So when you stand there, you can see the canyon. You're kind of in the middle. You see the sides. You see above the canyon. And you can see from miles down. You see the river at the bottom of the canyon. And as I was standing there, and I saw this scene. And again, you can look around. You see like the people behind you that are much smaller. You see all the trees on the ground that look like small little bushes. I had this inexplicable sense of how small I was. And I saw, I could see four miles, especially the top of the canyon, which is flat. You could see, like, to the horizon. It was, it was really, truly unreal. And then it hit me, just in a moment, again, my friends were taking pictures, we were looking around. As I got close to the edge, and I saw really how high up we were, it hit me that somebody made this. Like, the God that I believe in created this huge, vast canyon. And then, like, it really, like, I couldn't, I didn't know, I didn't, I, I don't necessarily describe it as a happy feeling. Like, I, I kind of shrunk down a little bit. And, like, it hit me how big and vast everything else was and how small I was. And the second place that really enforced how small I felt was a few years ago at PUC CAM meeting. And again, if you were a student at PUC CAM meeting, you may know what I'm talking about. Um, up on the hill, if you go towards where the uh, dorms, Nickel and McGrennels are, there's a trail that you can follow out, and it goes to a clearing. It's called the observatory. I don't know if it actually is one. I've never been inside. But where it is, it's kind of a dirt clearing. And if you're there, there's very little light pollution. And I've gone a few times with either leaders or with a junior high student. Sometimes we'll hike out there. And when you go and you turn off all your phones, you turn off all the flashlights, you can see, I swear, it's like every single star in the sky. There are so many stars. And again, growing up in Orange County, Southern California, I remember the first time I saw it, it like, I could not believe it. It looks fake. And you can very clearly see this like, like, this, like hazy streak in the sky. And you're like, no one even needs to tell you like, dang, that's the Milky Way. And these are like all these stars. And when you stand in that vast expanse of like countless stars, there's this really, really small feeling that you get. Especially coupled with modern science that you know that these aren't just dots in the sky. These are huge, huge balls of gas, way bigger than Earth, millions of miles away. Somebody made all this. Somebody put all this up there and you stand there and it's like beautiful but you realize how small you are and how potentially insignificant you are and it's it's kind of an unsettling feeling really it's beautiful but the word i would use to describe and again i've never re- i haven't felt this feeling very often but Awe is the word. I was, I was genuinely awestruck. And there's this awareness. I feel like in those situations, maybe it's different for you. Maybe you had a different experience in your life. But in those moments, I genuinely felt this feeling of there is something, there is someone much, much bigger than I am. And I, despite the fact that in my life, I feel like I'm the main character and I'm the director and I'm, you know, I live in this awesome life. That I am merely a side character in this grand whatever this is. I feel like whether you're, you believe in God or not, you can't sit in those moments and help but feel a little bit small and a little bit more insignificant. And again, I would argue that's what the teacher here is saying. There's an awareness inside all of us of the eternal, of something more, of something bigger than ourselves. The universe does not revolve around you. How could it when you're so small and that you are not in charge and that really, as a teacher would argue, you aren't even in charge of your own life. How can you be the director of your own life when you don't even know the script? You don't know what's going to happen an hour, two hours, a day from now. How can you sit here and feel like you have control over your life? Tell me what happens tomorrow. Tell me how your movie ends. Tell me what happens to build up. None of us can answer any of these questions because as a teacher would say, your life is determined by what happens to you. And you merely respond to the situations around you. So with this in mind, again, I'm reading this passage, and I'm like thoroughly like, I have hit rock bottom now. And again, this is where the teacher comes in and says, this is what I mean when I say that life is Hevel. You don't know when your story is going to end, and you don't know what the last, tell me what the last five scenes of your movie are. You can't, because you don't even know when this movie ends, let alone what happens in between. And sure, you can make plans and adjust and plan, but really at the end of the day, there's no guarantee anything you want to do will actually happen, and at the end of the day, you're all, to a certain degree, subject to what life throws at you, subject to the seasons of life that come your way, and now that you've fully hit rock bottom, right, now that he's really ingrained in you, that you are very small, this is what he says, this is how he ends this passage, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 to 14, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, the speaker concludes this before he goes on to a different section, he concludes by saying the following words, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Um, basically, the two phrases he says are, be happy and do good while you live. Right After he says, you're small, you don't have control, he says, be happy and do good while you live. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. He says, um, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people Will fear him. At the end of all of this, after he makes you feel so small and insignificant and question everything you've done in life, he ends by saying, just enjoy life. Life is awesome. Just drink and eat and be happy with your toil. And he says, This is actually a gift from God. The gift from God is, once you recognize all of this, just enjoy the life that you have. And again, it's it's it sits a little bit weirdly with me when you read that. It's kind of like it feels like it should be part of a different Of a different chapter or at least a different book and his solution essentially to all of this is enjoy life in the present because of what he says in verse 14 he says i know that everything god does will endure forever nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it god does it so that people will fear him throughout this entire chapter the teacher builds his case you are hevel you don't know when you're going to die you don't know how long you're going to live and while you live you don't know what's going to happen you are fleeting You are temporary. But he ends the chapter by citing someone that isn't Hevel, someone that is eternal, and someone that can actually see time from a perspective that we cannot. And so after he builds this case about how we can't possibly understand the march of time, and we're all victims to the seasons of life that come, at the very end, he cites that there is someone that God, what he does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. And God does this so that people Will fear him. Throughout the entire chapter, the teacher builds this case that we are hevel, and ends by telling us, "But there is hope. There is someone that is outside of that description. Someone that isn't hevel. Someone that doesn't see life from the perspective that you do. And that while our life will eventually end, and and if if that really all, if that's really all it was, then when we died, that life would end. Life actually would be hevel. So what he says is this: Listen, you have no control of your life. But there is someone that does have control of your life. So what you and I need to do is lean into that fact. Lean into the fact that you have no control over what truly happens and place that trust in someone or something else. And especially for those of us here that deal with a lot of anxiety or struggle, this can be a really hard thing to do, especially those of us, every single one of us, I feel like, to a certain degree, we want to be able to control our life. We want to be able to control who we are, what we do in the next 10, 15, 20 years of our life, who we end up with, what job we have. But ultimately, what this teacher says, again, not to make no plans at all, but at the end of the day, is that something you can really control? And then he cites someone that can truly control this. There's a story about a world-renowned martial artist um, who specialized in kung fu, and this kung fu master was getting ready to retire, and as he was getting ready to retire, um, he was going to hand off his practice to his protege, who was by no means young. But again, this man was like a living legend. He was like the best at what he did. And so it was kind of like a Moses and Joshua moment where like his protege was taking over for someone that was an absolute legend at what he did. And so he was very nervous. And he came to the master and said, you know, I'm, I'm very scared. I'm very anxious about what the future is going to bring. I don't know if I can handle it. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can fill in your footsteps. And the last words, one of the last words that this uh, grandmaster tells to his student is this quote here. Yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. If you're not aware, this is a a quote from an animation called Kung Fu Panda. And again, (laughs) while this well this is technically true, this man was, was a legend, a martial artist. Um and while no, this is not a passage from scripture, and this is you know a very, very much a secular understanding of life, this this idea that yesterday is history. In other words, there's nothing you can do about the past. None of us have the ability to go back and correct the mistake that we made or live through a, the golden era of our life again. And tomorrow, there are so many verses in the Bible that talk about how you have no control over what happens tomorrow. You don't even know whether you'll be alive tomorrow. That aspect is very biblical. In James chapter 4, verse 14, the brother, James, the brother of Jesus, says this. Why, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And again, speaking to the temporary ephemeral nature of life, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow is mystery, as Master Ugwe would say. But the one thing that we can do when we lean into this, once we accept that, A, I can't go back, I can't fix a mistake or live in, in an era that I really loved, I can't go forward and predict what will happen, I can't make any concrete plans, because really, at the end of the day, who really knows what season of life I'll be thrown into, the one thing I can do is today. And Jesus says this as well in Matthew chapter 6. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow has enough worries about its own. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble for its own. So really, the idea that you and I are not in control of our lives is found throughout all of Scripture. Jesus enforces it. His followers in James enforce it. Master Ugwe enforces it. There are so many examples of this where really, and we know this, right? Most of us, we know this to be the case. Obviously, no one has a time machine, but a lot of the ways that we live our life would say otherwise. And the teacher's advice to you and to me as mortal human beings that are stuck in these seasons of life is to enjoy the gift of God that he has to offer you, to enjoy life, to enjoy the fruits of your labor. But the only way you can really do that the only way you can truly break out of this, this meaninglessness, heaviness is to place your trust in someone that can see above the hevel, that can see above the smoke and the mist, and to place your trust in God. And I don't know if the same person wrote this, but in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, again, I'd like to think it was the same person or someone similar, but in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. As we close, in the spirit of actually doing something about this, I've prepared three prayer topics for this week. And depending, and I try to think about our church's demographic and that there are different people in different places about life. Um, And I want you to pray about one of three things. Again, depending on which one speaks to you the most, and it may depend on the area of life that you're in, that there are three areas that I thought about what would stress someone out the most, depending on the stage of life that they're in. If you're a student... If you're in the youth or you're in college or young adult that's in grad school, the prayer request, the prayer assignment request for you is that you pray over your future job. And if I, when I speak to the youth, again, I used to do the Sabbath. In the Sabbath school, I asked them, what is your biggest stress right now? What brings you the most anxiety and worry? For all of them, it's school. Why? Because school will dictate the grades that I get, will dictate the friends that I make, the job that I get, the career that I have, and ultimately the success in life that I'm in. And so it stresses me out because I need to do well in school. But ultimately, ultimately, for you to say that, do you really have control over that aspect of your life? Can you really say that that's something that can stress you out enough about your life? Do you really have control over what happens later? Not to say you should just, again, not to say that you should just stop doing your homework and not care now, but truly, when Jesus talks about the stresses of life, he talks about us being worried about things that we cannot control, things that are outside of our reach. If you're a parent or you're an adult and you're no longer in school, can pick from one of two, if you're single, your future spouse. I feel like that's something, especially when you're done with school and kind of in that young adult stage of life, it's a very stressful thing. Who do I end up with? How am I going to end up with them? It's a very stressful thing to ask yourself. But again, ultimately, that is outside of your hands for the most part. Who you end up with, you should place in the hands of someone else, unless you're Anna to Mars you don't need to worry about that anymore. But aside from that, um, that's something you should pray about. And lastly, but not least, for the parents. I imagine one of the, and again, I say this cautiously as someone that is not a parent myself, but I imagine that one of the biggest stresses of parents, whether you're an empty nester or your kid is like an infant and still crawling, one of the biggest stresses I imagine you have is what is my kid going to be like? What kind of person will my kid eventually grow up to be? And I imagine that it's a very stressful thing. You want the best for your child. You want your child to be a good, upstanding person. You want them to make good choices and good decisions and not have to suffer unnecessarily. But at the end of the day, you don't truly have control of the life of that, of someone else's life. And you don't really even have control over your own life. And a lot of times, I imagine, it maybe keeps you up at night. Especially if you're an empty nester, that means... Your child is roughly my age, and they're an adult. They're off on their own and making even more impactful decisions. Imagine there are probably a few parents in this room that have stayed up at night because of this very facet. What is my child doing? What are they going to do? How are they going to? When are they going to? Why won't they stop? But the reality is, even your life you can't answer those questions to. Your life is heavy, and so why don't you lean on someone who can take care of that? The idea that these prayer topics, when we give up these things to God, whether it's our hard and future plans, whether it's the, the fate of someone else in our life, a loved one who we'll end up with, the idea is that these prayer topics, that we bring these to God, areas of our lives that are important to us, things that we deeply care about, we realize that ultimately we cannot control these things. And it helps us build our trust in God, that in the acknowledgement of our weakness, we recognize the one who has true strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you again for this time as we come together and and reflect on the words of of the teacher lord and in a lot of ways father the book of ecclesiastes it just shines a light on what we already know to be true father we know that ultimately a lot of our life is outside of our control lord that ultimately that we would love to be able to control every aspect of our lives how we feel what we feel what we do but really a lot of who we are is dictated by things that are outside of our control and that we as human beings are simply living in a stage of heaven lord that we are temporary and fleeting and a lot of our life we can't even explain but father we come before you in prayer knowing that we speak and address someone that is above all of that father that someone that there is someone who loves us and cares for us that speaks from above the heaven lord that is eternal that is everlasting and that does see the reason and sees above all the chaos and the confusion in our own lives so father we come before you today in a prayer of surrender lord we let go of the, try to, the control that we try to have, Father. We place it in your hands, Lord. Let us, in doing so, experience your gift of love, of peace, of joy, that we can go through life knowing that ultimately, although we may not see the reason, we may not see the purpose, we may not see the end plan and the blueprint, we trust in the one that does in you, Father. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.